Hi, I'm Nathan Gould. And I'm Lazarus Kroos. And welcome to episode two of The Back Peg. It's great to be back with you for another week. And last, we've got a special guest on this episode. Yeah, we do, Nathan. We've got Patrick Skeen, who's joining us, who's the Chief Creative Officer of Cultural Pulse. Um, and Patrick's been involved in uh, multicultural sports, uh, grassroots campaigns, and um, he'll tell us a, a bit about uh, his experience with the AFC Asian Cup. And I believe he's actually doing some work for the FIFA Women's World Cup. Yeah, it'll be great to have him on, pick his brain over how Australian football can better connect with the uh, large uh, immigrant population we have here that we're not quite making the most of. Yeah, look, it's it's interesting that you say that. I think that there are opportunities here that we aren't, we aren't really aware of or actually actively pursuing. And, and I think that what I get the sense, I don't know about you, Nathan, but I get the sense that we really don't know what we're in for come July, August. Like, it's great to have the pre-sales of half a million tickets sold, you know, for the tournament. But I think the actual uh, buzz around the tournament and I think there's either a scent, there's either a lack of what to expect or people don't know what to expect, if that makes sense. So joining us this week on the back peg is uh, Patrick Skeen, who is Chief Creative Officer of Cultural Pulse. Storyteller, author, speaker, absolutely brilliant guy to follow on LinkedIn. I've followed Patrick for a while and we've uh, connected through LinkedIn and uh, met in recent times. And uh, Patrick has runs his eye on all sports and has got some great um, stories to tell with regard to football. And if anyone can tell a great story, it's Patrick. So thanks for joining us on the, on the back peg, Patrick. Thank you, Lazarus. Thank you, Nathan. Always happy to talk football. So, Patrick... Just kicking off uh, our chat, just wanted to get uh, your background with regards to the beautiful game and how you came to uh, become an appreciator of it and what stories internationally and locally have captured your imagination. Played for 30-odd years on and off in in, in different places. Uh, I'm a coach now. I coach my son for the mighty Rockdale Raiders. Just had four years taking him from six to nines. I may be, may or may not be retiring to do my daughter. <laughs> He's going to be starting up under sixes again. So I want to return the cycle to when it's fun and there's no shouting parents. And my other hat is, well, I, I, I write the occasional story. So I wrote a story on on Ulysses Kokinos, a very famous first royalty um, as a playboy of Australian footballer and just brought something really special to the league in Melbourne um, in the 60s. and. I also, putting my marketing hat on, um, I've got a company called Cultural Pulse, and we've been working for 15 years in marketing the Socceroos, Asian Cup games, uh, Asian Champions League games to the multicultural communities in in Sydney. Um, And Sydney is 57 or 58% uh, non-English speaking background and, and one in three Asian. But we do a lot of national competitions. So we did the fan engagement for the Asian Cup, which was amazing. Everyone thought that was going to be a lemon, so that's probably the greatest triumph. But we've had a lot of success marketing away fan base for the Socceroos. So whoever the Socceroos play with, Japan, Lebanon, gotten some very big crowds out marketing to our to our people. And also uh, we've just won the contract to do the multicultural marketing and engagement for the FIFA Women's World Cup 2023, both in New Zealand and Australia. So we'll be running quite a big community ambassador program and getting some good content from the teams and doing everything we can to educate and build awareness um, ahead of that and hoping to infect the uh, not just the casuals but um, the people that might be interested in say Chilean or Argentinian culture they've got a match coming up in New Zealand that we'll be doing a little bit of work on and there's a, a group of people out there that if you combine some culture in the precinct some food some dance some DJs, some music, customise that experience. There's one thing people forget. These are the, the only events where these communities get to sing their national anthem and really show their pride, not tucked away in their own corridor events, but out in the, in the mainstream, in the public, telling the world about you know, how proud they are of their Chinese-Australian or Japanese-Australian community down here. And we've had a lot of success doing that. So I come from football from, from many angles. I love all sports, but... I really do love the impact football has 
it managed to become a global game. Uh, the low barriers to access, even though it does cost you over $3,000 if your child unluckily makes reps in Australia. Topic for conversation <laughs> another day, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll throw that down the bottom. So um, come at it from different angles, but that's probably the, the, the biggest place I am now. Um, I love the storytelling. I wrote a few pieces for The Guardian um, for the Asian Cup. You know, I was just really in the centre of that, directing traffic for the uh, for, for, for the marketing and everything that worked. What people haven't really accepted is the increase in standard of Asian football. Uh, big money's coming into the Middle East. Big money's coming to Japan, China. Uh, Japan and China technically are improving. Korea is has always been a force. The wake up call was the last World Cup, where you know we we were all. Che- I I felt it's the the most pan Asian Australia has been in the last World Cup. We were cheering even Saudi, you know, which comes um, with some stigmas. Mm-hmm. People were kind of thrilled that Saudi had beaten Argentina as a reflection back on the broad scale improvement of Asian football. So I'm a total Asia football fanatic. As far as the opportunities concerned, I can't tell you who the strikers in Division Two um, in Vietnam are, but I can certainly um, support on many levels. There are other guys that do that and do a great job um, mm. on the train spotting side, mm. but I'm more about the opportunity, the linkages with the Australian Asian football communities, which I'm the uh, patron of the Australian Lebanese Football Association and the Australian Somali Football Association, two groups I've helped get up their community tournaments, one in Melbourne, one in Sydney. And through our programs, we've got about a thousand community ambassadors that are football related who are fanatics of the game and have worked and helped maybe get uh, either during the Asian Cup or helped at various times help us fill the away bays with screaming fans, which look so good on Foxtel um, when, when we watch the games. Yeah. So I wanted to pick your brain about the Asian Cup because one thing that really caught my eye was all the color and the different culture and all things we saw in the games not involving Australia, particularly that match down in Canberra. I think it was Iran and Iraq, if memory serves. And just tell us what sort of work went into that sort of experience, getting all the people to the grounds that weren't Australian-based. There was a lot of overseas travellers from the rest of the Confederation. What went into setting up such a spectacular match in that instance as well as some of the rest of the games at the Asian Cup? So that one's a great example. So you're you're talking two groups of people that share over a 1,000 kilometres of border. They have, in some things, 3,000-year-old rivalries. Um, you've got ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Persia playing out <laughs> in Canberra. And I don't think Canberra's ever seen or felt anything like the passion. I mean, it happened to be an unbelievably brilliant game as well. Goals were fantastic. And those images of Iranian players jumping towards their fan group, just waiting to engulf them and same with the, the, the Iraqis. So how do, how, do, how do we get to full stadium um, in Canberra? I mean, how do we get to 15,000 average crowds when they were predicting 5,000? The first was the Community Ambassador Program. That kind of underpinned everything. So we recruited formal ambassadors who were media people, heads of community associations. Super fans were one particular group that, you know, if they were fanatical fans, but um, anyone that was really, really passionate and was prepared to put in. We had an events program, so we're at over 200 community events. And we had to do quite a significant education program because a lot of the people didn't know who you'll have your hardcores that turn up and you know go to the Iraqi football websites. But most people have kind of left that behind in a way at, at fan engagement level, and only the football hardcores know who could name more than five players in the Iranian team. So we wrote our bios on all the players and we put them in language. So we went out in nine or ten different languages. So we had and we and we did a Significant awareness program, pushing out player videos, player bios, who, what, where, why, good good posters with the three Japanese games on it. The ambassadors are pushing that out. We also had a group sales program where you could get in, incentivized with 50 tickets for your community association if you could get to 500 tickets. We did reserved fan base, so we pulled bays off and says you've got two weeks of, of this to be the exclusive fan bay. And that's quite crucial because a lot of women and children don't want to sit, particularly Arabic ones or Muslim ones or conservative communities, they will only go out if they know they're sitting within their own community. It's just it's a, it's a, you've seen the Bulldogs in rugby league master that strategy as well when they used to have the Bulldog Express and leaving from Belmore and a lot of the Muslim community parents would get, get on the Bulldog Express and they'd be sitting in a certain bay and 
you make sure you've got a prayer room there and you've done all those little things to make people feel included. So that was, um, and, and that all culminates in, um, so you do some early sales through the group sales by putting bays on for strict time windows to create a sense of urgency and closure when you've got a full full stadium to fill. It's quite difficult to do, but you've, you create a bit of scarcity and, um, and, and you can get things moving. Then it gets a momentum of its own. Then you've got a traditional media campaign um, where you can start to say 30%, 40%, 50% have been sold. You've got posters, flyers going out through social, through the traditional media. And, and say the Iraqi community, they're split into eight different groups. The Kurds, the Sunnis, the Shias, the Mandeas, the Kaldans, they're all in their own groups. They're very proud to be Iraqi, but they're different groups. The Assyrians, a massive group out in, out in Fairfield. And, you know, we had... Captain Saadi Toma, who was a nine-time captain of the Iraqi team who fled. The Assyrians copped it particularly hard under Saddam Hussein. Um, they've basically been ethnic, ethnically cleansed off the plains of Nineveh. Um, and you know, the Assyrians were one of the extraordinary uh, civilizations to inherit mm. from the original Sumerians. Mm. And a lot of the great knowledge that we have about the Sumerians, our first ever civilization comes from the Assyrians. So there are hardcore ancient people. And I'm quite honoured that we've got a big block of Assyrians in Fairfield and I can go out there and have Assyrian food. But with all the ingredients available in Australia, we're talking the exact food that you would get in Nineveh from the remaining Assyrian populations if you went over there. So they had an old Assyrian, uh, an old Iraqi captain sort of kicking around doing clinics and we thought, you know, let's make Captain Sadi Toma uh, a community ambassador. And guys like him talking out in the community, pushing it, Every, you've got your, an all-points bulletin just letting this community know how important it was. The Iranians went to a new level. I don't know if you remember the first game in Melbourne. They got 17,000 people in uh, AME, or Melbourne at Rectangular Stadium, yep. should I say. <laughs> and um, they got 17,000 people just dancing on the steps, going mad outside, bringing the real positive cultural element of uh, personal pride in, in, in your cultural identity all coming forth. And the Iranians went to the next level because they did huge group sales early. They were looking to raise, use the money from the additional tickets to fund an Iranian community center or go into the funding for a community, an Iranian community center in, in Melbourne. And they actually put in a 10-minute video online all of the Iranian songs that they were going to sing in order, not like the Japanese who just sing one song a hundred times. The Iranians had 10 minutes of songs, sort of Wandery style. Mm. You know, some of the early Wanderers guys had their hymn sheets out. Yeah. You know, I caught them when I when I, when I walked past. Um, if you remember those. Uh, those early Paragraphman Stadium days, days yeah. Went in another direction. So the Iranians came armed with all the songs. And I'm a bit older than you guys, but there used to be a time when there was a concert coming to town. You would get out your vinyl that had the lyrics on the back and you were relentlessly putting it in because you wanted to. That was one of the reasons you went to one artist over another that you yeah. could sing their, um, their, 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 their back catalogue or sing along with the guy to get your $90 or whatever it was worth. So the Iranians took that approach. And I don't know if you remember Iran versus Qatar in Sydney, but the Iranians yes. were fully organised. They yep. had guys in fluoro who were kind of conductors and trouble watchers and they were, you know, organising the songs. I mean, really unlike anything we've seen hmm. in Australian sports, we've got a bunch of, of firsts happening of this level of organized fandom. The ticket prices helped. It was $5 for kids, 15 for adults as the mm. base price, yeah, for some of the better prices. And we also did group sales where they basically gave cash to their organization. And there's a, a bit of a high wire act, but we're working with credible people as well. Yeah. And, you know, you just, it's not bring Muhammad to the mountain. It's, it, it's, you know, it's, we're going to the people in a way that works for them. So we had, we were, selling tickets in these community points of presence, money transfer places. So there was a bit of uh, trust there, but we didn't have one issue with it. Hmm. Um, you know, the Ticket Tech and Ticketmaster ticketing portals are a disgrace. You know, they, they make you join from the outset, which yeah. I, I, a lot of migrants don't want to be joining things. Well, be smart about it. Let them pick their seat and go all the way through to the end and then ding them for yeah. their email. You know, show some create the dream most people aren't going to pull out at that stage but there's mm. just a whole a, a whole bunch of things but we just thought we can't change that um and then we got to and and then we had all sorts of naysayers there was eddie mcguire of course said this is going to be a lemon um 
you know, I wish Eddie Maguire could death ride every every event that I've, um, <laughs> that I've, that I've worked on. And there was some guy in Melbourne, some government guy, they call him Dr. No. Dr. No said that you won't get more than 5,000 people a game um, at the matches in Melbourne. I looked over and Dr. No was a bit sheepish and confused during the Iranian game, as they yeah. sang all night on that uh, on that first game. And there was a Japan-Uzbekistan game that just sold out. That's right. And it was unbelievable. And we had, we, yeah. we had five or six Uzbek, uh, Uzbek um, community ambassadors who just basically got the entire 100% of the census of the Uzbeks were there <laughs> that day. It was like ban. There was no one, even yeah. poor guys out of hospital. It was like, you've got to come. Uzbekistan's <laughs> in Australia. That was the first time that ever. And then mm. it was just the power of football in full bloom. And after that game, I was down in Dandenong just pumping the plov till sort of midnight. They fed me up like the fatted the fatted calf <laughs> for showing them a bit of respect with the uh, yeah. with the community ambassador program. So Dr. No and Eddie McGuire and a bunch of cynics said, oh, the $5, the $5, $5.15, when we revert to the quarterfinals, when more traditional ticketing pricing kicks in, the migrants won't pay it. They're a bunch of poor, you know, living on the bones of their ass. It's like, no, 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 no. The Iranians that came down, a big chunk of them are doctors and BMW driving. You know, you don't have a community cluster in Taramara on Sydney's leafy North Shore unless, you know, everyone just has these visions of... So we said, okay, we'll see how you go with that predictions. So we get to the semifinals, Iraq versus Korea at yeah. Sydney Stadium. Yeah, remember that. Now, in these cash communities, whether it's Lebanon uh, and Pacific Islanders in rugby league, there are a bunch of people that love to come and pay cash. A lot of migrants love cash um, for a whole range of reasons, the way they, they, they operate. So we had no walk-up that day because the rain was sheeting down at 45 degrees. It was like tropical madness. And we got 36,000 mm. people at Sydney Stadium, whole lower bowl filled on a torrential night for the Iraq versus Korea game. More Koreans and Iraqis, funnily enough. Not funnily enough, but the Koreans really mm. came out mm. uh, big time. And that, that broke the AFC record for the largest crowd in a match not involving a home team. So we completely torpedoed, utterly torpedoed this migrants don't have money narrative and by the, by the time we got to the final of course everyone wanted a ticket because that's right australia was in a regional yeah. final and they discovered right. football so the koreans you know they didn't get to buy at all as many tickets as they would have uh, they would have loved and it would have brought a bit more color to have five or ten thousand more koreans in there but you know people make their decisions based on first in uh first in best dressed so yeah there was um you know, so many, so many wonderful stories in the in the Asian Cup. You know, the Japan Palestine game up in Newcastle was just a thing of absolute cultural mm. beauty. Uh, you know, the Palestinians, not many of them, but no, that's right. You know, a lot of people's second favourite team just 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 because they've landed in the underdog outside any of the politics. They're just a small little underdog, and Aussies naturally um, gravitate to yeah. to to the underdog stories. So yeah, the cup was just a feast. Of, I could go on about that for, mm. uh, for for hours. It was a feast of, but it was it was magic. And then um, afterwards, there's been no specific programs to engage Asian communities since. There's a, a feeling that we've already got them. But you know, I was out at the Macarthur game the other night in Campbelltown against against Central Coast. Absolutely magnificent game of football as a spectator, end to end stuff. Good skills. Um, there's a Solomon Islands player, Kantar there, a Vanuatu player there. The Vanuatu community are out with their headdress supporting him. So many sub-narratives, so many plots, and, you know, let's call it five grand. You know, what a shame that, mm. we, that, 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 we have, that we haven't connected them in, you know, clubs voting against the plus one rule. The plus one rule doesn't hurt you. It's an optional thing you can take up if you want, if you want to maybe connect with local communities that live in your catchment or maybe get the best player out of Vietnam that you can trade off later. There might be good business 100%. to vote against. No one's, no, no one's ever asking you to take up your plus one Asian player above your four shiny yeah. European. 100%. No, no one's asking, but still to vote against its very existence is a when other codes are begging for Asian engagement points. <laughs> Not only do we have nine games a year in Australia and nine, Away games in everywhere we love to trade, the f our future, everything. AFL have to go and find $4 million for one game a year in Shanghai. These happen automatically 
every year. No DFAT involvement, no trade involvement. I think AFL raised four, five, six million from, and you know, why don't blame AFL? No, you know, they're the only girl at the disco. They're going to get it all. But in my work, which is multicultural sports marketing and mm. multicultural participation programs, so Cultural Pulse developed the a sport for all program for Cricket Australia. We co-designed that, mm. and we co-designed or designed the AFL multicultural program. Both have raised more than $20 million. ComBank came in and sponsored the Sport for All program. Mm. You don't put the program together, the money won't come in because the program has the amount of touch points that a bank or a major funding needs with the target audience. Never been a prop put together. Um, I work with all the other sports and I've, I've asked them, they don't fear football's participation. They don't really fear that because it hasn't converted into fan engagement for a whole range of things. And yeah. you can talk of all you want. Like my son just went to a Sydney FC clinic today. There's a three-day mm-hmm. clinic down in, in Rockdale. So he's dressed in his blue and mm-hmm. whatever, and it gets his three-day pass. And that's the only time we hear from them outside, come down and play. Sometimes we get those come and play mm-hmm. at half time, but that's just as much for the club as it is mm-hmm. for the boys because the club then looks grassrootsy. That's right. Um, but why don't we have a Sydney FC coach come down and coach coaches claim us? You know, you're from owning all of Sydney. The West has been clawed from you. The Southwest has now been clawed for you. If you don't, you're not careful, you're going to be stuck, you know, being the lords of the teals. Yeah, and it's a similar situation in Melbourne as well, for sure. So, so Patrick, um, with regards to lessons that we can learn, because you've covered off a fair few of the questions that we were going to ask you, actually, right, which is well, great. what you could do is maybe do some sort of special <laughs> thing where you ask questions, you edit and ask questions in between. You guys look like you're on. Once I get rolling, I can't stop. It's weird because uh, it's... It's all I good. Get, we, like, I, we appreciate it. My, my, my brain stops and it's like I would never have thought of Japan or Uzbekistan. I've never even spoken about it to anyone in five years. So if it goes, I've just got to run with it and I'll, you know, you guys can distill it. Yeah, it's funny though. When you mention the games, they just keep coming back. It's incredible. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. With regards to the uh, lessons that the game itself can learn from the AFC Asian Cup 2015 and why we haven't been able to kick on as a game, to util, you know, to utilize the opportunities, we, you know, the games wasted the opportunities that came out of that. We've got a huge event, which you, you think you're going to be working on the cultural pulse, right? Which is the women's uh, world cup. What are the lessons that we can take away from, from your experience of the Asian cup that we need to, as a game, um, you, you know, capitalize on so that this opportunity doesn't get wasted? Because I don't think. Australia and New Zealand, actually, the general populace have an idea as to how big this World Cup, Women's World Cup, is going to be. Well, from the Asian Cup, it hasn't been leveraged because there hasn't been that base. If there's not that base respect for Asian football, hmm. and I've been in A League club boardrooms where they've viewed making the Asian Cup as a financial headache and a pain rather than the gateway to our our great regional trophy. Hmm. So that that that. The res- the lack of the- and the plus the plus one rule which I uh, spoke to you about earlier that you know allowing the option of having an additional import from Asia above the four uh, spots that are allowed for imports in the A League and the fact that that gets voted down like ten nil or whatever I heard it was last is mm. it's the most mind boggling disrespectful. I mean we're in the Asian and how many Aussies are playing um, or-, or were playing up for a while up there and getting employment everywhere and. Um, just just being a good citizen of the region that you're in would dictate that you you know Western Sydney Wanderers may be able to get a, a great relationship with with a Vietnamese club and 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 engage consistently engage someone that's in their catchment. Um, they could someone India's up for grabs if you established mm-hmm. you know got you got a young Indian guy fresh out of high school who's showing great potential. You could have scouting camps up there and and and, and really engage with India. But there's nothing. No one, there's no sister club relationships of any anything substantive or or ongoing. The staff churn over as much as the players in the A League, so these things are often uh, people to people done. And after the initial junket, it just it dies, and that's why without the formal MOUs, those relationships don't continue. They just continue ad hoc. Or, or my friend, I've got a friend who knows someone, in the, and that, rather than it being a strategic uh, approach. Until that base respect is there for Asia, nothing can really happen when making the Asian Champions League is like a booby prize. One one thing I can share with you is I talk to all the other sports 
I've worked with all the other sports. I've wrote the programs for, written the programs for, for the other sports, the other major ones, work with them all, um, at, at, at different levels. The only thing they fear that football gets its act together, because it's already got its act together on participation, it's bursting at the seams, but, but it hasn't been converted into broadcast eyeballs, which is that by so far the primary source of money. But if they, the other sports all fear football getting its act together as far as the Asian communities, the fast growing, we're in the region, 1.4 million Chinese in this country, close to a million Indians now. Asian communities will be do- dominating the skilled migrant intake for the tech shortage for the next 10 years. We've just seen the start of that. All the other sports fear, that's the only thing they fear. Even Kevin Sheedy said, you know, football's got the immigration department as its main supplier of, of fans. He actually got called racist and all sorts of things for that. It's like, no, well, that's what he's saying. He's, he's telling you your advantage, the thing they fear. In the urban markets, and that's it's the urban markets where the broadcast eyeball battles are won. All the sports fear. Now, if you were any other company ignoring your major competitive advantage that your competitors say they fear you for, any other industry, you would be hung, drawn, and quartered. Shareholders would march you out of the building and say, you have been completely negligent. You are destroying this opportunity in front of us. But no, 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 it just... It just meanders on. And if you don't have it, like if you were to walk in now to any of the clubs or football friends and say, what, can you just send me a copy of your strategy for the 1.4 million Chinese community? And I'll just have, I'll have a quick look at it and, you know, give it a few red pen or maybe a few suggestions. What, what would you get? They had a, there was an indigenous strategy mm. in truth. No one talks about this. I've, I've got no. a copy of it. There was an indigenous strategy in 2016. It went for two years. It had all these things on there. They removed it from the website. Like, what other strategy gets pulled halfway through? And now it's back with jerseys and, you know, yeah. John Moriarty Foundation. Yeah. What, mm. what other group actually pulls it down halfway through and then pretends it doesn't exist? I, I was lucky enough to get a PDF copy that, you know, I occasionally resurface the Shackleton expedition of uh, world football programs that just got frozen in ice halfway through. It was, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. Mm. So, yeah, that's um, if you're going to ignore your major advantage and keep plugging away, because we know we're multi-sport people. We know how much the hardcore AFL people, the hardcore rugby league people, the hardcore rugby union people, they despise soccer, not just because the simulation and diving and, and carry-on doesn't align with Australian values, as they see it. Mm. They actually look at it as, as, as an invasive species that's coming to, like, uh, one rugby union guy described as like tarp moving upstream through the Murray River yeah. system, killing all the redfin and you know yellow belly and the you know the, the Murray cod and the and the native fish, and that, and that ignores the fundamental premise that that football was played well before rugby league in this before rugby league was even invented and that's right before rugby union came here in any significant fashion, but you know history is really very many different competing narratives all depends who's got the pen at the time the funny thing is right that the football the sport of football in australia is fractured as it is anyway right there's enough uh you know there's there's enough uh going against it internally because we tend to shoot ourselves in the foot unfortunately right yet like you just uh highlighted a few moments ago is that the other sports and the followers of uh, other sports. I mean, and there are people that appreciate all sports, right? But the other sports have a intrinsic disdain for football. And the analogy that you put that you've uh, uh, put there is with with regard to carp floating up the uh, the Murray River. That's how it's viewed. That's how the sport is viewed. And yet, and 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 it does suffer from the old NSL, yeah, yeah. Macedonians and Greeks yeah. thrashing it out in Preston, you know, yeah. on an afternoon. Um, you know, the the wog ball. I think, what did the Melbourne Victory guy say? Um, no more wog ball and pumpkin seed eaters. Is that what he yeah, said? Yeah, yeah, I think something like I that. I recently said <laughs> at one of those sort of Melbourne Victory businessy sessions, yeah. sort of, it's like, mate, we have audio equipment now that records these things. And, um, but that's that, that feeling that a lot of the white market perpetuates that they were actually outsiders for the NSL period when it was really one of the greatest IP transfers. Mm. In world sport, it was all of those people from you know all the different countries coming down to Australia and contributing, and out of that comes the golden generation. And anyone that doesn't attribute the golden, 
even just you just have to have a cursory glance and look where yeah. you know a hardcore Anglo like Harry Cool played to mm-hmm. get to the greatness he did. So then you have you know I'm working in AFL now and they are always working out you know the VFL to AFL record keeping when the VFL was exactly the same as the West Australian Football League, the Waffle, the South Australian. But those records over there aren't given credibility, but the records, um, even though the VFL is just a Victorian, it seamlessly, when it went from VFL to AFL, everyone just kept their first-grade records as such. But that mean-spirited thing where they – and they may – I think there has been a reunion of, of the statistics, but where I think it was Damien Morrie played mm. half his time on one side of the Grand Canyon NSL and then his other half in the air. I think he was the one from memory. and. That was so mean spirited to rip away the heritage, the history, the people that had like were two hundred gamers, three hundred gamers, gave, yep. given their hearts off. They were just playing the highest available professional competition. If it happened happened to be sustained by mi- migrant money at the time, they were the only ones that could get the thing up to a national level. Before that, it was ye olde state state championships that no one gave a rat's about. Mm-hmm. So was the ethnic segmentation of Australian football in the best interest in the long term. You know, we've all read Joe Gorman's book and, you know, um, but to not look at it as like a part of the journey that got us where we are, the luxury of having going back to effectively state and city leagues that are funded and filled with quality players and, you know, have a fan base. To cut off from that European side so brutally has alienated Australian football, not only from its European migrants, but from the Asian migrants through the lack of any acknowledgement whatsoever of them as a community through customised or, or personalised marketing. The two great continental group, and there's not really enough South Americans in Australia, CONCACAF mm. countries, to move the needle as such. So with great love and respect to all those guys, we're talking about the two groups that are um, are the groups that could make a difference or the groups that would strike great fear into the other sports if they went and re-owned the Italians and... Mm. I'll give you another example. In 2011, we did a, a cultural diversity audit of the A-League. It was a piece of work we did for FFA. The diversity was just staggering. But there was, you know, 20 Italians, 15 Greeks. There could be a really great healing piece marketing those guys back to their communities. Like the wars are over, guys. Look, the whole next generation's coming through and uh, he's from his mother's from Milan, his dad's from Sicily, and, and market them back because all those old Italian guys, you'll get them with the stories of the young, what's your favourite Italian dish? That's why they migrated here. They migrated to see the fruits of, um, you know, their kids talking English and taking up opportunities and, oh, he's in computers. You can just imagine it. No, never, never hero build back to those communities. There's just a Grand Canyon in Australian football. And unless they want to realise the Asian opportunity and heal the European opportunity, if why wouldn't you become Euro snobs? You know, that great thing, the Euro snob. Why wouldn't you become when you've been treated like that? Why wouldn't yeah. you just go back and watch Serie A and, and La Liga and just forget about it here when you've been left out, your records expunged like a, a pharaoh removing the details of the previous pharaoh and just going over the top? What sort of strategy is that? But you can't even point, you can't even point the finger at one person, really. Mm. Um, it's just been a, a systematic alienation yeah. of your core markets, which from any other business standpoint looks terrifying. And you'd be removed from post instantly if you if you took that approach with any other product who want to buy, who are already educated, love the product. The acquisition cost is very low. You don't have to educate them. Like the Chinese in cricket, the acquisition cost is massive because mm. they don't know what LBW is. They don't know what the follow-on is. They, you've got, before you even have a conversation, you've, you've dropped 10 million in the Chinese community in Australia cricket if you wanted to actually win them over. Um, so... There there you have is Australian football is ignoring its two major markets and is suffering terribly. Uh, And you know what? Even with all that, I go out to MacArthur FC and there's Asians in the crowd. Like you've already even doing nothing. You've got them in in a way that other sports would crave to have it. It happens organically. Imagine what would happen if you unleashed the power of football and focus and attention and love and resources and really just treated them like customers you want to win over. Jeff Bezos style. Um, imagine where Australian football could go then, because it's not a massive white market to alienate and get pissed off as well. If you find this massive <laughs> white market wa- waiting that, that Australian football's missed out on, you you might find the Roman Ninth Legion that disappeared in the 
in the misty highlands and no, no one ever heard from again and you'll find Harold Holt as well. It's, it's absurd. <laughs> They're still there. They're just its like whispering into the ear of a drunken corpse. It's, yeah. just, it's a waste. You, the white market you've got is big. You've got it already. There's, yeah. there's no there's no growth, even though a lot of you know league parents are putting their kids in soccer because of the concussion, whatever. Mm. They're still watching league. My Rockdale Raiders team, for example, at the end of every um, game, we have a 20-minute league session. They they beg it because they can't play it at school. There's no bull rush. They've got no contact. And they live out their NRL dreams at the end of my soccer training and the parents all look worried and someone's going to do something. And um, that's it's, it's, it's the world we live in. But it's the, um, the A-League, it's just not even giving it a crack. It's not yeah. even having a go. Uh, it's not even failing gloriously. It's just... Doing the one ad, put, dropping it on a few channels, you know, and then you've got to ask people to come out to Paramount uh, with all of its um, mm. moments. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, that's. I mean, if you know, if you ignore your two major markets, you deserve really, you deserve everything you get until you get the leader that says, "Okay, why don't we play to our strengths?" Absolutely, and the way I see it, if you want to really increase the white market following for Australia, you need to get those participation numbers into the A League via athletes choosing to play football at a professional level and not losing them to rugby league and to AFL, for the most part of which comes down to a financial decision. They get paid better in the other codes. The way that I see it, you get players paid more here in the A-League is to increase those alternative markets that you've been talking to, the likes of the Asian market, the European market. You need to get them involved in the game again, get them together with the A-League clubs, sign players from those regions. Like you've been saying earlier with a Vietnamese player, bring him into the Western Sydney. Why not? Is there an opportunity here for a change in strategy with the Women's World Cup? Is there an opportunity to right this wrong? Are you seeing inclinations that that might be on the precipice? We might be seeing that happen. I think with the women's, I think with the women, I mean, women's, women's are, are well advanced. The Matildas are massive. The Matildas have got their own crowds, um, history, you know, some sad stuff. I've read the Matildas, mm. some of the Matildas history books, and there's some sad, yeah. sad stuff in there about, you know, people just funding themselves and, you know, bringing their own irons. Car washes, cake stores. Yeah. 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 There's, there's, there's all manner of stories, but, um, but women are going to come to the same growth plateau that the men have come to. Yeah. And that is once you've, once you've exhausted the white market and the the census tells no lies and demographically, you know, the Anglo communities, their fertility is at replacement rate. The Lebanese have, Four kids, Anglo's have have two because Anglo's are thinking about private schools and actually allocate a cost per head of child and what they can afford. And um, that's that. That's just that's not offensive to anyone. But we, we don't grow as a country if we're just relying on on, on Anglo growth. I mean, I mean, you look at those new housing estates out past Campbelltown, Norellan. Hmm. They're 40, 50, 60, 70, sometimes eighty percent Indian. So Macarthur has Walker Corporation, the big land group. All these new Indian people are coming in. They don't have a sense of civic identity. They're not going to relate to the West Tigers. The thing that will make them proud and bind them to the MacArthur region won't be where they go to school. It should be MacArthur Bulls, MacArthur FC. They've got the cow horn. There's some good little traditions starting out there. You've actually got the House and Land Package King as one of your sponsors. Again, I walk into MacArthur FC today, ask for their Indian strategy. You can send me a copy. I'd like to have a look at it, You know, get out the red pen, throw in a few things. They couldn't send you a document. So until the Asian communities and European, there's a healing piece with the European communities, and that is there's already a hell of a lot of unbelievable Italians and Greeks and Croats, all the big groups that are over 100,000, there's plenty of representatives. Market those guys back to them. Tell the Croatian community what part of Croatia they're from, what their mum's favourite dish is. Market the Macedonians, the Macedonians, you know, can he cook chavapi? Or, man, keep it fun, keep it cultural. Mm. At least do that. All the other sports don't have these people to market back to. They've they've got no conversation. There's nothing. There's nothing to say. So um, you know, it just all comes back to respect where we are in Asia. Um, we have acknowledged we have the number one product for government engagement with the forty seven countries of the AFC. We've got it in football. We I'm all the sports, but yeah, you know, football's so undercooked and so under um, uh, under under its potential that you know it, it, it played his strengths. Um, Go back to your uh, comment, Nathan, about um, you know, really develop those relationships with the EPL if you have to. Like that Future Stars program for the NBL where um, LaMelo yeah. ball, came, ball came down to play, mm. that was ridiculous. And that's good. That was that, What did that say? They said, we, we love the NBL enough to um, put a place a player with you. 
But why does Goran Kual need to get placed with Hearts? He can still be placed down here if people acknowledge the, the, the A-League because this is the problem and no one wants to acknowledge it. When you're marketing second-tier sport in Australia, whether it's the NBL or the A-League, every time a player turns up for a new year on your roster, he's been knocked back by 19 other leagues. His agent's been knocked back. They pay more than the A-League. If we're, Let's just assume it's free market. The agents will take their player to the highest bidder possible to maximise his or her fee. So you have incredible player churn. Your players are itching to get out of these clubs. As much as we're trying to build brands, the players are itching to get out. Some of them come back, and I'm seeing some, some beautiful stories of them putting back in, and there's enough club tradition now that you're seeing some of that. You know, And the old soccer is coming back. Always great stories there. The young guys get to test their medal against them. But with intense player churn, there'll never be like a Steve Menzies at Manly who's the absolute best player in the game that stays at the club for 15 years that you can build. You can't build franchise players at the A-League because they'll go. I remember David Carney was the magic man for Sydney FC. I remember one year he just blitzed them. He was. I remember taking out 50 Chinese guys and they just sell him. And he went over them. You know, last thing I heard he was, you know, in Uzbekistan playing for the tractors or, or, or <laughs> you know, getting paid cash or, you know, sorry, Uzbekistan, that was terrible. But, you know, the stereotype is he's under um, our best player couldn't yeah. cut it over there. So, um, but I've seen some marketing where they, they market all the guys that have, like A-League, Cl- Central Coast Mariners should every week report in on what's happening with Matt Ryan and or, and Garanko. Own them. Their success is your success. And 100%. if we just repitch ourselves that we are a feeder league, we can't ever be with the Australian dollar where it is a whole range of factors. We can't ever be this top flight league. It's going to be a mix of old salties coming back, new guys on the rise, make your money through transfer fees, get financial, real serious money, and set up feeder relationships with. Look what Celt- look look at look at one Aussie coach has done, and the Scottish league is riddled with o- o- Aussies now living their absolute dream. Mm. And there's a lot of times they get you know, go straight from there into championship or, you know, get grabbed if your club's relegated or going for championship and they can fill as a role player. Those opportunities aren't really, they're starting to happen, but forge formal relationships with clubs over there. So Aussies get that saloon passage in. Yeah. You don't have to be relying on a video or, or or these some of these academies that are down here sort of, I'll get you into Barcelona and, you know, yeah. after 10 grand, you, you know, did a tour of the new and that's about it. Um, so that, you know, and, and accept that and realize that you're just a producer of young, hot players, or you've got old Del Piero's coming back and realize you're going to miss that middle group because that, 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 that middle group's going to go. Um, and accept that. And, um, and the, the other thing is all these guys are, fun- they're clean skins. They're funky as hell. They've got great music taste. They play PlayStation. They're absolute model for even the one, even if they're only here for one year, who cares? Mm. Sydney Kings and the basketball are used to that. Roland Roberts will come down every- you can actually get into a guy in one year. You buy yeah. a shirt, you go and watch him, he signs, he goes, oh, like, oh, farewell, my heart's broken. But the next guy, as long as I know about him. But when I did these the surveys in 2011, I thought, you know, Thomas Broich speaks five languages and plays the piano and no one ever told me that. You know, we've got a thinking man. Thinking man's German up there. Has he been marketed to the German community? Has he gone and given a speech at um, the Goethe Institute, the Goethe yeah. Institute? No, no leverage. No, nothing, because people don't acknowledge culture, your cultural background, as a key part of consumer behavior and following someone in, in hero building. You know, it's rugby league. I like the guy with the red hair because he's different, or the guy with the afro, or Olsen Filipina because he had big thighs, whatever it was. The football never unleashes the fact that there's hardly any DV, hardly any problems. Um, Bullet, you know, it was exciting we had one sort of gangster that did a bit of time because they're so common in other sports. Mm. Um, a lot of the clean skins, you got your tattooed guys, you got your clean ones, you got your tall ones, skinny ones, all different cultures. No one knows anything about them. If you went and did uh, one of those Vox Pops on the streets of Campbelltown and asked them to name the Bulls, um, I remember it was funny when the, the Swans went out to Blacktown and, and, and did that and, and they put all the faces up and no one in Blacktown knew they were. No, yeah. Closest one guy got for Barry Hall said, oh, is that Ben Hall, the, the, the bush ranger? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. If, if, if if you're not going to let like, – there will always be rusted on fans and good on them. Yeah. I'll go up and find the player profiles yeah. and whatever. You've got to push these stories out, you know, have fortnight battles between these guys, whatever. Whatever's cool in the world, A-League players are doing. They're not yeah. trapped in the, you know, Jimmy Barnesy, you know, oldie world uh, – of Australia, they're 
they're the funky guys. They're the ones out in the cool clubs, you know, the the tech house, and you know, man, they're never market. We never know. We never know who's cool, and that's um, that's a real problem. Is hero building in the A League? You've got a year or two tops if you've got real talent. I mean, even Arzani, they're not really even marketing to their. Yeah. I didn't see any Iranians out there the other day. Yeah, um, and it's hard, you know. I know Dom out at uh, Macarthur, and, and, and unless he gets the funds to go and do it, you're just trapped in a world of stunts. And should those funds, those funds should come from uh, from higher above because they might not have an Iran. It might be Central Coast that has the Iranian next year. Mm. You can't rely on the clubs to become the experts in these communities because it's quite opportunistic who they get. Or he pulls a hammy and doesn't play all year, and you've got no one to market. It needs to come down from the. They need to have an Iranian strategy. So wherever an Iranian player pops up, bang, we've got the media partners, we've got the community ambassadors will market, and um, you know that's how we work. But if you're not going to play to your strengths, then you leave yourself to the wolves. Patrick, we could go on for hours. Uh, it's yeah. been absolutely great to talk to you, and we'll have to get you on again for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because there's uh, there's just a whole range of uh, issues that you just highlighted in that last bit as well, which we could delve into. So thank you for your time. Um, quick, quick question: Who do you support in the in, in overseas, internationally? Like any teams of note that we should uh, know about? Or- Straight, straight Gunners Arsenal man, so I'm floating on okay. air. Invitations off, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, good to see. Good to see. They've, they've been great this season. They've been great this season. Yeah, well, it's just a, you know, a coach, you know, and, and let's a coach builds on what's gone on before as well, but sometimes they've just got the X factor. And, you know, we're, in football, you're very much, if you follow it, you're very much students of man management as well. Very um, true. And he's well, done. And he's done really well. Their, they really already well. have their skills. It's about yeah. getting in up here and finding out what makes them tick. And it's beautiful to see that you know the old spray and one size fits all nonsense is uh, is has been banished. Yeah, no, he's done really well. Thanks again, Patrick. All right, thank you, gentlemen. Great to catch up with Patrick on this episode of the Back Peg, Laz. Fantastic guest to have on, and great insight into how. We can move forward as a game and where the real growth is because Australian football, as Patrick was saying, is always chasing its tail a little bit and there's a real opportunity there that we're not really grasping as a game. Yeah, Nathan, I I think you're right there. I think we've got huge opportunities here and both here and in New Zealand for that matter. And it'll be interesting as, you know, we go down the line to see what we're actually doing to try and capture these opportunities and make the most of them. I know legacy is a word that's banded around, but what is the legacy of this tournament going to be in both Australia and New Zealand? Not only just on the games itself, but also, you know, the the, uh, the girls' game and the women's game in particular. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that um, uh, how that transpires down the line. Absolutely, and we're going to get plenty more guests on the back peak to talk about some of the issues in Australian football and how can we improve them with a bit of a focus on the Women's World Cup coming up in six months' time or so, and there's plenty of insight to be gathered and there should be some good chats coming up. Laz, we're going to have a little bit of a chat about uh, the week's action. We're not going to go through matches, of course, in too much depth, but what caught your eye in the past seven days of football? There's been a few things, Nathan, but I'll tell you what, performance of the week, Napoli against Juventus. Oof. (laughs) Yeah, oof. Oof oof (laughs) is the right response because, gee whiz, what they did to Juventus is just unbelievable. Juventus who uh, had turned a corner. A dismantling. That was what you call a scientific dismantling in football terms. I mean, yeah, it was just crazy. And the Napoli coach just chasing the Juventus coach down the tunnel, about 20 metres down the the track (laughs) (laughs) to shake hands. Yeah, yeah, crazy. They're in the box seat now to win the Scudetto, surely now, Napoli. Have to be, have to be. They're a real threat for the European Cup as well. I tell you what, if I'm, you wouldn't want to be playing Napoli in the Champions League. You'd be scared of them. The way I look at it, the four teams in England who are still in the Champions League, none of them are really hitting their straps at the moment. City have lots of vulnerabilities that we've seen over the last couple of months. Chelsea are not at their best, neither are Liverpool. And Tottenham, you can throw them in the same basket as well. So, yes, it's a long time between now and May, but I'd be surprised if an English team wins the Champions League this season. I don't think they will. I think Liverpool are gone at the uh, round of 16. You would say that, though. Of course I would. <laughs> but, um, Having Real Madrid. Correct. But, yeah, so, yeah, I, I think that um, – I think 
Napoli are definitely a, a dark horse for this thing. Yeah, look, Manchester City are the English team that everyone will fear in this year's Champions League anyway. But, you know, there's a lot, a lot of football to be played, that's for sure. A lot of football to be played. Uh, I noticed that Juventus also speaking about uh, Juventus a moment ago. They've got a new CEO as well. So the whole board's gone with this uh, scandal that's, uh, that we're all keeping an eye on, which means, of course, Juventus in trouble. Normally, a couple of years later or you know, three years later, there's a World Cup around the corner and Italy wins. So if you want to put early money on the 2026 World Cup, go for Italy because Juventus will be probably <laughs> relegated or something like that will happen. <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? They don't make the last two World Cups. They win a Euros in between. And if they go on and win the World Cup in North America, it'll be a remarkable decade. Yeah. 1982, Juventus trouble leading up to the uh, 82 World Cup. You know, a couple of years out from there, Italy go on to win the 82 World Cup. You know, 2004, Juventus relegated. 2006, go win the World Cup, you know. Uh, or accuse the match-fixing of Juventus, you know, and then they were relegated. But, you know, so whenever Juventus is in trouble, it means that uh, Italy is due to win the next World Cup. Just a, one of the funny quirks of football, isn't it? That's right. That's right. Some some may say coincidence, but uh, yeah, interesting to see how that one pans out. Yeah, good, good to see that um, with the women's World Cup that they're looking at from a crowd perspective. You know, some people might not enjoy the stadium experience, but the demand is there for the Matildas' opening home game to be moved to Stadium Australia at Homebush. Yes, double the crowd against Ireland, mm. and a lot of that is the. Groundswell support for the Matildas, but also because there is such a large Irish community in Australia and in Sydney. Mm-hmm. There's so many people wanting to get to that game, and it will be a fantastic atmosphere. Hopefully, they do manage to move it to the Olympic Stadium. And yes, you can have your qualms about the venue itself, and maybe perhaps Moore Park is a better stadium to watch football. I won't disagree with you on that viewpoint, but if you can pack out an 83,000 seater for the opening match of the Women's World Cup for the host nation, you have to try and make that happen, even if there is some hiccups surrounding the availability and FIFA's rules for uh, stadiums. And the massive hurdle there is the state of origin match. I think they can resolve this, though. So the thing is, FIFA requires the stadium to be vacant and unused two weeks prior to a match. Yep. And state of origin is scheduled within that two weeks. So that, mm. that's the that's the hurdle that they've got to clear to move this game. And regardless, if it is moved or not, it's positive signs for the tournament that there is the large interest in getting up to the, getting over to these matches, and uh, it, it bodes well for the rest of the tournament, if they move the game or not. 100%, 100%. And look, the final's played there, so we can't complain about the venue itself with the final you know, being scheduled to be played at that stadium. So it's either good for football or it isn't. So it, it really comes down to that. So, And if we can get 83,500 out there, all the better for it, which would make this Women's World Cup, I mean, it's already the biggest in terms of numbers, as you know, being the first uh, competition, or first edition rather, uh, to feature 32 nations. But uh, you can imagine the uh, groundswell of support and, and momentum that um, will be around the tournament if they can manage to move this game, that's for sure. Absolutely, and that's going to continue on if the Matildas are looking good as one of the potential favourites to lift the whole thing out. They're not the favourites coming into the tournament, but the Socceroos weren't either for the Asian Cup in 2015, and we saw what the home support was able to do back then. Perhaps we'll see a similar similar outcome here uh, this year. Tony G under pressure? He was after the Canada Games. Mm. I think that's a low point in terms of his support. Mm-hmm. A lot is going to rest on how these uh, Cup of Nations games go uh, coming up, whether or not the Matildas are able to come back to their best. Mm. I think if they don't have a good showing, it's a massive call to perhaps to move him on prior to a home world cup and there was a similar level of uh, calls to remove the the men's national team manager prior to the major tournament didn't go ahead and look what we got in turn yes apples and oranges but i think it's a massive call to move tony on even if he is losing a little bit of the support from the public mm, yeah i think the jury's still out on him it's the team selections that worry me with regards to the matildas um but I'll, I'll save that for another time, I think. We'll wait to see what happens in this uh, Cup of Nations and we'll see what um, what, ha- what transpires there. What else caught your eye? Anything else catch your eye off, on or off the pitch? We'll stick to off the pitch stuff. Okay. I've got one that's on the pitch, but anyway. 
Okay. Okay. We'll come on to that. I'll throw that your way later on. Yep. Sweet. I, I have an inclination <laughs> on what it might be. Um, <laughs> I gave it away, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> no prizes for guessing now. Um, it's uh, surrounding the ownership of some of the clubs in England. We see yes. the, the sale for Chelsea went through six months ago and Chelsea fans are by and large not happy with the current regime. Mm-hmm. Despite all the money they've been able to put into the team and into the into the club, but we see Liverpool up for sale, and we also see Manchester United up for sale, and it's a it's a seismic time for football in England and in Europe because the nature of the new owners really does shape how football is going to look for the foreseeable. And I wonder how it's going to go. Is Liverpool and Manchester United are they going to get new owners perhaps from the Gulf region to rival the likes of uh, your Newcastle and? And City, of course, having Saudi and Emirati ownership, is the Premier League going to be a proxy war for the Gulf region? <laughs> yeah, it, look, it's a, it, and it also it, look. You raise an interesting point there because it makes you wonder how clubs like Real Madrid and Barcelona and Atletico Bilbao, for that matter, where the own where the owners of the club are the members, mm. um, and how in Barcelona's case and Real Madrid's case in particular, because they've had the greatest success with no disrespect to Bilbao how they are able to pull off the feats that they have and reinvest, you know, invest in the, in particular Real Madrid, invest in the training facilities that they have, invest in this stadium, the uh, revamped Santiago Bernabeu, which is just going to be absolutely phenomenal and achieve the the success that they have without the infusion of Middle Eastern uh, money. Very interesting. And, you mentioned Athletic Club. They are one of the richest clubs in Europe, just by and large, because they don't go out and sign players in the market. They pocket pretty much all the money that comes through with the TV revenue and all that sort of uh, commercial side of things. And it's interesting. You look as well at the German clubs, by and large, <clears throat> with the exception of maybe one or two. They are 50% plus one fan-owned, and that's a model that is fantastic and long may it continue in German football. Plenty of calls for it to have some alterations, but... It's a fantastic setup, and yes, we see Bayern Munich dominate the league, and they've basically they poach all the best talent, and they run away with it pretty much every season because they've saved a lot of the clubs in Germany from financial ruin. But they've been able to generate one of the best leagues in Europe without extensive foreign money coming into the league and, and into the club. So it's interesting now. The, fu- the long-term future of football is something that is a very interesting point that. Already, we're seeing the Premier League become this de facto Super League. Mm-hmm. Yep. Where yep. just the, the spending is just ridiculous compared to the rest of the leagues in Europe. And the strategy for these other clubs, these super clubs, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Juventus, to some extent PSG, how they're going to be able to compete with the Premier League long term. Yeah. The initial feeling is that Liverpool perhaps will be subject to a, a Qatari bid and perhaps Manchester United are going to be bought by Ineos which is run by Jim Ratcliffe, Sir Jim Ratcliffe, from Manchester, former season ticket holder. It's interesting the way football's going, is my grandeur point. I think we all have trepidation and, and concerns with regards to how the ownership of these clubs, and in particular the English Premier League, because that's sort of the league that we are more, more exposed to, is concerned. Look, I, I don't know if it's good for football in the long run, but like you look at Sol Bowley, right, with Chelsea, playing football manager basically. Right, it's it's insane. Look, it makes uh, for good content. We can talk about it. We can you know go crazy on it, and and there are other places that do. But yeah, it's definitely watch this space. And and you're right. I think the EPL has basically turned into the Super League that UEFA were worried about. Yeah, and the problem is the genie's out of the bottle now. Yep, very much so. Very much so. So uh, it's just that uh, Real Madrid, you know, the likes of Real Madrid. Barcelona and Juventus uh, want to try and um, capture that uh, that action as well, essentially. So, yeah, look, the Super League will be uh, an interesting point in case and maybe we can have a chat about that in detail one day to see what's going on. Look, FIFA actually posted something uh, today as well. Been one month since the World Cup final. Wow. That's been a quick month, I tell you. It sure has. Sure has. Uh, and they uh, posted some metrics and interesting to note, there was nothing about uh, the legacy with regards to um, you know migrants, uh, migrant workers, and compensation and all that kind of stuff, so that was interesting. That were interesting emissions. 
Very much so. That that's something we've covered off on on previous episodes of the back peg. These sorts of things that should be set up, but it seems as though that FIFA and Qatar are saying after a largely successful World Cup on the pitch. On the pitch, it absolutely was. You can't argue that at all. I think on the pitch, one of the best World Cups we've ever seen, if not the best. And it appears as though the feeling is that, okay, we had a good World Cup on the pitch. No one really cares about these off-field issues anymore. We can move on. It's been a great tournament and everything's A-OK. But no, there is still these issues that hang over the head of the tournament and FIFA have to carry the can. Yeah, they sure do. They sure do. So what do you think caught my eye on the pitch, Nathan? (laughs) Uh, It's not going to be the offside rule, is it? Can you explain offside to me? Because I'm buggered if I know what the hell it is. Like seriously, I'm about to yeah. like. I'm. This is where I get. This is where we need to put the E rating on now because it's going to be explicit. Like what the fuck? Seriously, yeah, it's incredible. It is incredible how Rashford can be deemed. And I'm not. Yes, I'm saying this to take the piss out of you as well, right? Because you know, because <laughs> you're just an easy target right now, being a Man U supporter. But you Absolutely. cannot tell me. Absolutely, bring it on. <laughs> but you cannot tell me. Right with your heart of hearts, that Rashford it does not interfere with play. Like, come on, like, you know. And I know this isn't supposed to be a technical thing where we're talking, but this look, we're football fans, right? And when you see something like that, it just irritates the hell out of you. It did irritate me, I'll tell you. Of course, it did. <laughs> um, yeah, with the United hat on, I'd rather have a controversial goal than win three nil. So would I. It's amazing. I love it. I love reading all the 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 backlash surrounding the, the law. It, it, it's great reading. It's it's comedic. I'll just uh, sit there with a, a bit of a chuckle at at uh, the the poor fortune of Manchester City. And yes, of course, it should have been flagged offside. You see, people make the argument about uh, he's not really like Kanji's oh, not getting on. there anyway. I, no, I can't subscribe to that whatsoever. The evidence is there. The evidence is there. He's literally hovering over the ball. Like don't don't as soon as he. Changes his run. He's impacted on the play. It should have been flaked there, and that's it. Look, we're not going to have a debate over whether this goal should have stood or not because we're on the same page. Yeah, and 100%. The biggest reason as to why he should be flagged offside, maybe Akanji and Kyle Walker were not getting there. We'll, not, we'll never know because it didn't happen. Rashford was there. But the biggest thing for me is the goalkeeper, is Edison. 100%. He's worried about Marcus Rashford coming through, and if Rashford is not in the play and it is just the ball arriving at Bruno Fernandes, Edison will know that Fernandez has to take a first-time shot. Otherwise, he's going to get tackled. He's going to get tackled by Kyle Walker. So he's going to shift his body to the left because that's where the shot's going to come. With Rashford there, he's not quite sure which way the ball is going to come off the shot. So he's a bit more rooted to the spot. Yes, you can argue it's just an, another distraction and he should be better than that. But no, this is a split-second moment. All these factors are there and Edison doesn't know if he's onside or not. He's got the worst view on the pitch. Of course not. Yeah, 100%. How Stuart Atwell cannot say that, oh, yeah, I just give him the goal. It baffles the mind. Not only that. And I'll tell you what, I mean, I've watched Gary Lineker a bit this week with not too much, but, <laughs> but enough. On match of the day, Liverpool oh, man, Wolves. Yes, that's right. Match of the day. <laughs> yes, Liverpool Wolves. So, <laughs> I was going to mention that later. But <laughs> the infamous prank. He handled that well, I'll tell you. But um, he was, um, you know, I watched Gary Lineker with Michael Richards and Richards is 100%. I know he's a Man City ex-player, right? But he's 100% right. The defender knows that Rashford is in an offside position as well, right? So he adjusts accordingly. So he's defending with that bearing in mind. Yes, he's got to play the flag. Where I'm really jacked off with this particular one is VAR. What are you doing? Like, honestly, what are you doing? Why have it if you if you are that useless? Right, where you you were saying that there is not a clear and fundamental error there. You've seen the linesman put the flag up, then you've seen the referee blow the goal. You've got to tell the ref, hey, hang on, don't give it. You can't give it. You know, it just things. And you, the point that you raised is one hundred percent right. It's the goalkeeper. The goalkeeper's the issue. It's not you know he's the one that's affected. Absolutely, and the official line as to why VAR didn't come into play is that it was a subjective decision, and he already had the chat with Darren Cairn, the sideline official, and they came to a decision themselves, and because it's subjective, VAR can't intervene, but that's rubbish, because VAR interjects itself over subjective decisions every single match. Yeah, exactly. exactly. The only objective rule in football is whether or not the ball cross the line. Correct. 100%. Everything else is shades of grey. 
So don't give me that tripe that VAR can't interject because it's a subjective decision. Come on. And you're, yeah, and you're saying that as a Manchester United fan. And, cre- and credit to you, right? 100%. Going back to what I said earlier, yes, it's funny. Yes, it's great to have a controversial decision go your way in a derby, in a high-profile match. It's brilliant. It's great viewing. Yeah, of course. But don't try and fool people. And you see so much analysis post-game and in the week. Man, need for analysis. It's offside, for goodness sake. Everyone's talking about it. There's no- Yeah, exactly. There's no need for analysis. Oh, <laughs> it's geez. blatant. He's standing over the ball. Like, come on. Come on. But then United should have been awarded a, a penalty this morning anyway, so- Ah, uh, uh, don't yeah. start this morning, all right, there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. What's your- what, what are you looking forward to this weekend? I know. I think I can imagine. I think I know the answer. Yeah, you do know the answer. It is United against Arsenal, and it's- would have been looking forward to it more if we were able to field our very expensive, very successful, high-profile Brazilian defensive midfielder in the match. But uh, unfortunately, he's picked up his fifth yellow card, which could have been a red in all honesty. But What a player he is. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Like, like, I knew he was good from Real Madrid. and Told you he was good. Yeah. you don't, I didn't get the appreciation on just how good he is. And it, he's up there for one of the best players in the league this season. Yes, he may not win it because there's other players that are scoring goals and making tackles and saves that catch the eye more. But Casemiro is in the in the contention for mine for player of the season. Yeah, yeah, hard to argue there. Hard to argue. Um, but yes, I am looking forward to United against Arsenal, and Arsenal have got to start dropping points somehow, some way. They got to start dropping points. And yes, they still play City twice. They still got to go to Newcastle. But every week, it's looking more and more like it's their title. And there is a sense of the Leicester City about them this season that surely this week they're going to start dropping points. Surely this week is the one where they start to fall away, but not. They just keep on winning. Very true. Very true. I'm looking forward to the back peg Spanish derby. Mm. Real Madrid are at Bilbao this weekend. (laughs) Uh, It's a good time to play Athletic Club at the moment. There you go. They're they're not doing too well. Not doing too well. Lost lost the Basque derby last week. I've got a uh, proposition for you. And we can report back on next week's uh, back pick. You and I are going to find the most obscure league, an obscure team. Like the, what, the Ecuadorian third division or something? <laughs> yep. Great. <laughs> Fantastic. And we're going to follow them. Oh, yep. And we're going to see how uh, how it stacks up. And we'll, you know, we'll just find, uh, you find an obscure team, in an obscure league, and I'll find one. Not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be the same league, but we'll just follow one and we'll report on their progress and how poor or well they are doing. Actually, let's get the people to pick for us. If they can, absolutely. Suggestions. If you're listening to this episode of The Back Peg, hit us up on the on Instagram or on Twitter. Let us know which obscure league should we cover, which one should we delve into and uh, go into footed in on uh, their, their ongoings. Give, give us a league or give us a club. It could be the uh, Irish Premiership or it could be the Bolivian... Second division, whatever it is, just let us know. <laughs> yes, we're, we're, we're here to adopt the team. Uh, applications right. welcome. <laughs> correct, correct. So, as long as we can, you know, find it and they're legitimate, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. This was a lot of fun, lads, talking to you, talking to Patrick Skeen as well. Uh, fantastic to have him on. And uh, I hope... Hope everyone enjoyed the chat with Patrick, and yes, uh, we'll see who we can get on in the back peg in the near future. That's right. We've reached the back peg, Nathan. Thanks again to you and uh, uh, for your help and uh, to everyone listening. Uh, do leave us a review if you feel so inclined, if you enjoyed the show. We greatly appreciate any feedback we do get, good, bad, or in between. Uh, do follow the socials, as I mentioned, Twitter and Instagram, at the back peg, and we'll speak to you soon. For now, I've been Nathan Gould. I'm Lazarus Grimos. Take care, all, and thanks again. Thanks again.